title of my message this morning is The Stone Was Rolled Away. And you can read the story of the resurrection in all four of the Gospels. But I'm going to be focusing primarily on the Gospel of Mark. If you want to turn to Mark, that would be just fine. It's Mark chapter 16. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses in a little while. But I want to start with a different scripture. I want to start with a scripture that's uh, very important. Well, it's important to everybody, but it's especially important to us here at Victory. It's part of our mission, part of our vision. And it's in John chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. It says this, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, the devil, comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. At Victory, one of the reasons this is so important as a verse to us, we feel that what a part of our purpose for even existing as a church is to help people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. And that abundant life in Christ is only possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When we come and celebrate Easter for us as children of God, as believers, it should be one of those reminders that there is an abundant life available to all in Jesus Christ. It's offered to everyone, but it's only received by those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Acknowledging that we're sinners and realizing that Jesus died on a cross to pay a price that we could never pay. He died and took on the wrath of God. He took on our sins. And the Bible even says he became a curse on our behalf. And he died on that cross to pay the price of our sin. He didn't pay the price to the devil. He paid the price to the Father. It was the Father's requirement. His justice demanded it, a sinless sacrifice. And when we think of Easter, we think of the resurrection on this Easter morning. And with the resurrection, there is a, it's like, it's like, here's the verdict. The sacrifice was accepted. The enemy is defeated. Death has been defeated. The power of sin has been defeated as Jesus rose from the grave. And that's what we celebrate. We're going to look at a little bit of the week preceding Easter Sunday. And I know you've probably been studying this throughout the week. I hope you have. But he's had quite a week. You ever have one of those weeks where you look on your calendar in advance and you go, oh, God, I've done this before to my wife. I've said, honey, I can hardly wait till this week is over. And sometimes I look back and I say, thank God that this week is over. But when I look at the week that Jesus just experienced, it makes anything I've ever gone through seem like nothing. It was just seven days earlier, one Sunday earlier, that Jesus had came riding into Jerusalem on the back of a, a colt of a donkey. And the people were celebrating. They were throwing their cloaks on the ground before him. They were waving palm branches. And all these things have significance. And that they were crying out things like, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we may not understand that, but that word Hosanna to them in that language at that time was a cry for deliverance. Every time they were crying out, Hosanna, it was a cry for deliverance. The word it says, save us, save us now, salvation is coming. And this is what they're cheering. And Jesus, of course, knowing he is the Messiah, would have the depth and the fullness of the depth of that understanding of that meaning. The people didn't really have a clue yet. They were saying it prophetically, but they didn't know what they were really saying. 
On Monday morning, Jesus and his disciples awakened, and they, they'd been staying in Bethany, about a mile, a little over a mile outside of Jerusalem. Bethany, the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, good friends of his. He'd stay at their house often when he'd be passing through on his way to Jerusalem. So they got up that Monday morning, and they went towards Jerusalem, and that's, remember, you fit the story of the fig tree. Jesus was hungry. He says, there's a fig tree. Let's go over there. But he got there, and guess what? There was no fruit. So he cursed the fig tree that morning. That evening when they went home, the disciples were amazed because the fig tree was dead in one day, one, one part of a day, because Jesus had cursed it. Jesus, on that Monday morning, he, he did what he did most of the week. He went in and offended the right religious people. He went in and he went and looked at the temple and he went into the temple and he cleansed the temple, the Bible says. It says in a righteous anger, he, he tipped over the tables of all the money changers. They had made an abomination out of the temple of God and he, he reminded them that it was written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations and you have made it a den of robbers. Needless to say, the religious people weren't all that impressed with Jesus on Monday. But it got worse. On Tuesday, he goes back. And he's teaching and he's offending the leaders and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. They're come to him. They're trying to trap him and asking him questions. And, and finally, one of them just is frustrated. And he says, by whose authority do you speak these things? Well, Jesus told them by whose authority he spoke these things. And that really, really upset them. They went home that evening again back to Bethany. Before they left, this is important, I don't want to forget it, on that Tuesday, he was teaching, and he was teaching things about the end times. He was teaching about the return of Christ when he was actually going to be coming back. He was teaching these things in such a way that the people listening, except for the religious leaders, were astonished, the word says. They were astonished at his teaching. And the whole time, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they were just getting more angry and more frustrated and trying to decide how we're going to deal with this problem. They went back to Bethany that night, and then Wednesday. Wednesday is an interesting day because we really don't know much about Wednesday of Holy Week. It looks like, it appears like that was the day when Mary came with that very expensive perfume and anointed Jesus, and his disciples got upset because it was so expensive and they were wasting the money, especially Judas. But that's really all we know about Wednesday. He may have just been resting because he knew what was coming. Thursday came. The church calls it Monday Thursday. Thursday comes and, and Jesus is preparing with his disciples for the Last Supper. And during that Last Supper, he, he demonstrates to them in a very, very clear way that he came as a servant to serve mankind. He did this by washing their feet which in a home, in the Jewish home in that day, that would be the job for the lowliest of servants in the home to wash the feet of the guests as they came into the house. And after the Lord's Supper, they, man, they got up and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you may know and remember from the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where Jesus was praying in agony, sweating great drops of blood. He even cried out to the Father. He says, Abba, Father, Anything is possible for you. If it's possible, remove this cup so I don't have to drink it. But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That Thursday evening, he's betrayed by Judas. They come and they arrest him. They arrest Jesus. 
disciples, these close followers, his best friends on earth, fled and abandoned him. Early the next morning, Peter was going to deny him three times. All of this taking place, he's taken to the home of the high priest at that time, a man by the name of Caiaphas. And that begins this farce of a trial that took place on Friday Jesus is taken to the home of Annas. He's the father-in-law of the high priest. Then he's taken to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Then he's taken to Pilate, and Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. Then he takes him to Herod, and Herod says, I don't want anything to do with this. You're going back to Pilate. And eventually, because of the religious leaders wanting him crucified, they decide to crucify Jesus. On that Friday, Judas realizes what he's done, and he goes out and hangs himself. At 9 o'clock that morning, and I think it's very significant, the timing. At 9 o'clock in the morning was the, was the time at the temple of the morning sacrifices. And at 9 o'clock in the morning, they nailed Jesus to a cross. Six hours later, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and again, the time is very significant. That is the time where in the temple they would begin the evening sacrifices. Jesus nailed to the cross at the time of the morning sacrifices, dead at the time of the evening sacrifice. By 6 o'clock that night, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had taken him off of the cross and had taken him to the tomb. Because of the religious laws of the day, they had to get him there quickly. And that's where he was Saturday morning. Saturday morning with the Sabbath. Saturday morning, this Sabbath for these men, these women, these followers of Jesus. We see some of them are gathered together in a room somewhere hiding, filled with grief, filled with sorrow, filled with fear, filled with confusion. The man that they had staked their lives on, who they had spent the last three years with, their teacher was dead. Their Lord was dead. The one that the people were calling the Messiah was dead and laying in a tomb. And for us and for them, the tomb represents death. I want to read in Mark chapter 16. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they had laid him. But now go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he had said to you. And they went and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him 
while they were mourning and while they were weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. And after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along the way to the country, the road to Emmaus. And they went away and they reported to the others, but they didn't believe them either. Picture that morning. We have Mary and Mary and Salome and other women, the way it looks, got up early and they're running to the tomb. And it's almost as if they had forgotten the situation they were going to find at the tomb. It was almost like if you and I would be doing something and all of a sudden the the light would come on and we'd say, wait a minute, they put a great big stone in front of that tomb. And the words that they say are, who's going to roll away the stone? It's way too big for those women to move that stone. Who's going to roll it away? That stone had three major problems for them. One, it was just big. It was huge. Two, it had been sealed with the Roman seal. You don't break the Roman seal unless you have a desire to be put in prison or killed. And three, a Roman, a group of Roman soldiers were left there to guard the tomb. These things is what they were facing as they were on their way to the tomb. And when they came to this realization, who is going to remove, who is going to roll away the stone? And then there's this thing we call death. Metaphorically, what a stone that is, death. The stone here represents a barrier between life and death. The tomb represents death. The stone represents a barrier. It's a barrier between the living and the dead. It's a barrier between light and darkness. It's a barrier between hope and despair. Who's going to remove the stone? And when they get there and the tomb comes in sight, we see in verse 4, the stone had been rolled away. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. I'm going to take us to a different location for just a few moments. When I read those words and I read about the stone in front of the tomb, it reminds me of another tomb. Another tomb that Jesus had been back, been at approximately maybe three weeks before. Something like that, maybe four weeks. It was a tomb of a man named Lazarus. Most of you know the story briefly bringing us up to speed. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, sisters and a brother, friends of Jesus. Lazarus, as the word says, a man whom Jesus loved. Jesus had gotten word that he was very, very sick and he, he delayed and didn't go right away. He knew full well what he was going to do. He shows up and finally Martha comes running to him and, and she says, Lord, if you'd have been here, If you'd have just been here, if you'd have just gotten here quicker, he wouldn't have had to die. She had faith for him to be healed by Jesus. And Jesus says to her, he will rise again. She doesn't get it. But she did understand something because she says, I understand, Lord, and I know that there will come a day in the resurrection where he rise rise again. And Jesus says, no, that's not it. Finally, Mary comes, and Jesus said, Where have you laid him? And they take him 
to the tomb that's blocked by a large stone. And you may remember from the story, all of the mourners that are there with them are present. Mary and Martha are mourning. And Jesus himself looks at the tomb and he looks at the people and he sees their grief. And that's where we see that verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. But then he says, remove the stone. Roll away the stone. And one of the sisters right away says, but Lord, it's been four days. By now he stinketh. And it's very, it's very symbolic that they waited the fourth day. Because until that fourth day, the first three days, they still treated it as a body that still contained or maintained a little bit of life. They put the herbs and all the, the spices and the oils. But on the fourth day, deterioration. And the Lord doesn't hesitate. He tells them to open the tomb, remove the stone. And they do. And then he speaks just a few words. He cries out, Lazarus, come forth. There's a little bit of a humor that's sometimes attached to that. Because there is a scripture in Matthew says that there is a day that is coming when all the dead will hear their name called and they will all come out of the grave. That's why he said, Lazarus, come forth. Can you imagine? But he says, Lazarus, come forth. And here's this dead man who's been in the grave four days, comes out of the tomb. And I always picture how it is he came out of the tomb because then it says he is still wrapped in his grave clothes around his body and around his head. And then Jesus sees him and he says, unloose him from his grave clothes. And the people unloosed him from the grave clothes. Jesus had done what only God can do. He showed through his compassion and power that he had the power over life and death. He removed the stone that was the barrier between the living and the dead. And he spoke the words, just come forth, and Lazarus came back to life. And what's really interesting in, in John eleven forty five, where you'll see this story in John chapter 11, Look at these two verses and look at the reaction of the people to what they just witnessed. Now remember, there's a large group of mourners. Some of them are paid professional mourners, but there's a large group of mourners. And they're eyewitnesses to this most astounding miracle. And then it says, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But... Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Two reactions to one of the most significant and amazing events you could imagine. Some reacted with faith and believed in him, while others rejected Christ, even having been eyewitnesses to this miracle. Some saw the power and compassion of Jesus and they still rejected him. 
As a matter of fact, not only did some of them reject him, some of them went back running to the Pharisees and the religious leaders and told them what Jesus had done. So they were actually part of the plot of his death. Jesus' fate was sealed from the world's perspective and from the devil's perspective on that day. Because the scripture tells us clearly from that day forward, the religious leaders were focused on one thing. How do we kill this Jesus? They'd been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years for a Messiah. And now their reaction is, how do we kill this Jesus? In verse 53, it says, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Little did they know that this was not going to be the victory they wanted. Little did they know, little did the devil know that this was not going to be a victory. At that moment in time, it was finalized in the eyes and minds of the religious people that the plan of God was going to be taking place. They were nothing more than players in an act, in a play, that had been agreed to and planned since the beginning of creation. The Lamb of God was going to fulfill his calling. And now they succeed in their plan to kill him. Going back to Mark chapter 16, verse 3, where the women said, Who will remove the stone away? Well, we all know God had moved the stone away. Angels had been sent from heaven. We don't know how the stone was really moved. We don't know. When you read the different writers, the the historians, it wasn't like the stone was maybe just rolled back out of the way. Some think it looked like it exploded away from the opening of the tomb. However it was moved, it was moved by God. God did what only God could do. The moved stone. What does it mean to us? Well, it should mean a number of things. The move stone now means that there is a new relationship with God possible for every one of us. We had been eternally separated from God because of sin and now because of the sacrifice of Jesus and the Father's acceptance of that sacrifice, we all have a hope of a new life, a new relationship with God. A new life, a new day in a new way. For an unbeliever, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior here in this place today, you've got to understand, wherever you're at, it's not hopeless. Whatever you're struggling with, there's victory. So often we feel such despair, such hopelessness, and we we think, why? It's such a waste. What's the purpose of life? Believe me and trust me and trust the Word of God that there is hope because the stone was moved away. There's hope because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. There's a new life available to every one of us. The Bible says old things have passed away, all things become new. We become new. The body continues to fall apart until we go home to the Lord. But we become new creatures in Christ. Minds renewed by the Word of God. Light replaces darkness. Hope replaces despair. All because Jesus was raised from that tomb and the stone was moved away. What do we see when we look at that tomb being empty? What do we see when the stone is moved? 
Do you see the power of God over sin and death? I always, in my imagination, try to picture the celebration of all the demons and the devil himself when Jesus took his last breath. And how they thought they had won. And how they have been. The devil and all the demonic forces that we resist, that we fight against all the time as Christians, are still trying to convince us that Jesus died and there's no hope. Whatever it is that we struggle with, we have those voices that are lies telling us that we're not good enough. That we are not acceptable to the Lord. That there is no hope. And these are all lies. It reminds me of Lazarus coming out of the tomb. God had raised him from the dead. And yet he was bound with his grave clothes. And if he'd have kept his grave clothes on, he wouldn't have been much good to anybody. But even so many of us as Christians, we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he died for our sins. We accept the gift of salvation. And yet it's like we live out our Christian life still wrapped in grave clothes. It's like we believe he moved the big stone from the tomb separating death and life. But it's like there's a whole bunch of little stones and and we keep a hold of them because we're hopeless. Grave clothes made up of guilt or shame. Grave clothes made out of fear or addiction. All of these grave clothes that are still on us and God is telling us and He's speaking to us, I died for all of that. I removed all the stone. The stone is gone. There's a power over sin and death that has been broken. We no longer have to live in bondage because He paid the price. What we need to do is believe and trust in Him. It's amazing to me and how in my own life I can believe for my salvation, my eternal security. I can believe that Jesus died died on a cross and was raised from the dead for me. But somehow I have a hard time believing I can get over fear of rejection, fear of man, guilt or shame. It's somehow I think like I can trust him for my eternal well-being, but I can't trust him for these little, these grave clothes that need to be ripped off. And I believe even in the picture of Lazarus, Jesus said, behold, remove the grave cross. Sometimes we need help. That's why we're the body of Christ. That's why they're family of God. Sometimes we need help. Because the devil, he's a good liar. He's a good deceiver and he's a good counterfeiter. And sometimes he fools us. And we're deceived. That's when we need brothers and sisters in Christ to help us see the deception so that we can break free of those grave clothes. Let those little stones be removed just like that big stone that sealed the tomb. Our tomb. It can be removed. Sometimes you say there's no way out. Sometimes you can't see light because it's all dark. Jesus said, I've removed the stone. Embrace Easter. Embrace the message of Easter. Embrace the reality that Christ is risen from the dead. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated powers of sin and darkness. There's a scripture that I read at a lot of funerals when we go to the cemetery. And it's one of those scriptures when you read it, you know, I, I don't know, I hope, I hope it brings solace to a family. But really, Easter is what gives meaning to this scripture, and it's found in 1 Corinthians. 
Chapter 15, beginning at verse 54. You've probably heard it at many funerals yourselves, many gravesides yourselves. It says this, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is nothing to fear anymore for a believer. Death is not an end. It is a new beginning for a believer. It's not darkness. It's a new light. It's in the presence of God. That's what Easter is about. Total victory was accomplished for us in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. That's the story of Easter. That's the story that should give us hope. And that's worth celebrating. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of the kind of love that would cause you to send your son to earth and live here as a man, live a sinless life, and yet walk the path to the cross of Calvary to take our sins, every sin, past, present, and future, take all our sin on his body, that he would become sin on our behalf, that he became a curse on our behalf, and he paid a price we could never pay, that we might have new life. And you raised him from the dead, demonstrating to the world for all eternity that death has been defeated, the power of sin has been defeated, that there is a victory for all who receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. What an amazing love you've demonstrated to us. And Father, not only that, you sent the Holy Spirit, your Spirit, to come and live and dwell in every single one of us who accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We have the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit living in us to help us, to be our teacher, to be our guide. That power that dwells in us that we might overcome those grave clothes. That we might experience the abundant life through Jesus Christ. I pray as we go forth, we're reminded of these things by your Spirit. That we walk in thanksgiving. That we walk in awe of who you are and that we are totally in awe of the reality of how much you love us. That you love every single person here. And you desire that all would know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and that none would perish. I pray, Lord, this morning that hearts have been softened and opened to receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And I pray now that as we go our ways to remember Easter, to fellowship with friends and family, that you would go before us. We pray your blessing upon us. Keep all safe as many will be traveling many miles on their way home later today. Father, we pray that all that we do would bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.